Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, though the government Newton has been celebrated widely as the right thing to do, it does leave universities in rather a tight spot. I find out exactly why. Also on the podcast, is obesity a problem of mental health? And at the very end, should we celebrate or criticise illegal raves in the age of Covid? First up, Ross Clark writes about the financial situation that a lot of universities find themselves in in this year of the pandemic, and that was before the government U-turned on exams. I'm joined by two guests to find out exactly why universities and higher education in general is in a dire state. Matthew Goodwin is Professor of Politics at the University of Kent and author of National Populism. We're also joined by Robert Halfen, Conservative MP who's Chair of the Education Select Committee. So Matthew, to start with, can you explain just why universities are in such a tight spot? I think the key point for me is that we have had a perfect storm for higher education coming for a few years and, and that storm essentially as a result of COVID and, and the events of this week is for some universities turning into a tornado. We've had a demographic dip. We've had fewer 18 and 19 year olds. We've had existing financial problems pushing more than 100 universities into pretty serious deficits. And more generally, I think it's fair to say we've had a model of higher education that, that just hasn't really been working well for institutions outside of the Russell Group. And that led to the cap essentially being put on so that those institutions further down the the league table, if you like, would essentially be guaranteed some students and a sort of spreading around of students. But now that that cap has come off this week, what we are already seeing are students who have been accepted through clearing into those mid or lower tier universities saying, well, you know, hang on a minute, maybe I can get into you know, a Russell Group University, for example, and then, and then moving off. So I, I fear that what we're seeing is a sort of compounding of longer term problems that in some cases may actually push universities out of existence. Matthew, but what about the counterpoint that some people have been making this week from a pro-market perspective that if students want to go to better ones, then let them? Well, I'm absolutely sympathetic to that point. Had we not created the system that, that we're in today, whereby many of the institutions that are going to suffer as a consequence of these actions and decisions also happen to be some of the largest employers in their respective areas. So, you know, people have said, for example, well, why, why can't we let institution X go bust? Well, when you look at institution X, often, let's say it's in a red wall seat, or let's say it's in, you know, a southwest or southeast county, often the local economy is heavily dependent upon that institution. And even if the government were to say, okay, well, some of these institutions aren't working in their current form, let's think about rebranding them, remodeling them, building closer links with you know, FE colleges and, and turning them into sort of more vocational sites, you still need the infrastructure and you still need the networks in order to do that. So in my view, the kind of bigger problem here is this broken higher education 
model, which which I think everyone would probably agree has been coming for a much longer time than the current crisis. Robert, Ross Clark warns that if no university goes under this year, they will have done a remarkable job. Is First of all, is the financial situation really so dire? And secondly, do you think the government would bail out any struggling ones this year? Well, I think clearly it's going to be difficult for uh, universities, but it is worth remembering that compared to other parts of our education system, higher education, universities in particular, have done pretty well over the past few years. And when we saw, if you compare university funding to further education funding, for example, there has been a massive difference and that has been wrong. I think if there is a silver lining to this cloud, it is that my select committee did a report on value for money at universities, something like nearly 50% of university students aren't getting good graduate jobs when they come out. I think that this is the reason why I say it's a silver lining is I think we need a radical reappraisal of what our higher education system is for. And to me, it should be based on a number of things. Does it uh, meet the skills needs of our nation? We have a huge skills deficit. We've got the arrival of automation. 28% of jobs, according to PwC, could be lost by young people by 2030 uh, because of fourth industrial revolution. Does it meet our skills needs? Does it provide education, obviously? Does it help the disadvantaged climb that ladder of opportunity? I think that we look at universities entirely in an upside down manner. We regard elite universities as Oxbridge. And believe me, very special. I went to Exeter University before anyone uh, says anything. I, best time of my life. But why don't we see an elite university like um, Nottingham Trent, for example, that has masses of people from disadvantaged backgrounds, that has extremely good graduate outcomes, that recognises our skills needs. In fact, every almost every student has to do significant amount of work experience alongside their course, and they do a lot of work on degree uh, apprenticeships. And yet we don't see that as an elite university. We see elite universities as in the Russell Group. Of course, some are good, but some are not. But many are outside the government's gold teaching uh, uh, framework of excellence. We see them as elite because they do research and because the House of Lords is stuffed with people from Russell Group universities. So that needs to change. And I think that actually, if I was the university's minister or the Secretary of State, I would use this opportunity to, to set out a white paper of radical reform of what is higher education for. I completely agree with Robert that I, I think, you know, in a way, the issue is almost broader than, than higher education. I'd almost take a step further back than 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 he did in saying that the meritocracy the society that we've created over the last 50 years in essence doesn't just give more status and esteem to oxbridge and russell group and it strips it away from other institutions but more generally we've created a society in which you know the sort of degree holders and and you know what david goodhart would call the heads have been given a lot more status and esteem than, than, than the hands and the hearts, the people who are doing construction work, the people who are working in our care industry. And, and it's not just a review of higher education we need, I think, but it's actually a review of the entire social settlement and who gets social status within our society and who doesn't. Because that question, in my mind, is behind all of the political turbulence that we've seen over the last decade. And it's also the question that stands behind the new Conservative Party electorate. So it's a question that the Conservative Party absolutely has to get on top of, because many of its voters, you know, are from those hand and heart industries, and they've chosen for various reasons, not even to go 
to university at all. So for me, that that's the sort of big macro debate that I think we need to have. Robert, that brings me on to my next question, which is that the Conservative Party's a stonking majority in the last election was underpinned by the Red Wall voters and this idea of the level up agenda moving away from the white collars that Matthew's been pointing out. How damaging has this educational fiasco been for the government's uh, reputation in that sense? Well, I should add also being in a hollow constituency, also uh, white van voters as well, white van men and white van uh, women, and not just in the northern Red Wall seats that these voters are. But I think it's been hugely damaging. It's been appalling what has gone on. I mean, the BTEC thing uh, that we just had in the last 24 hours really depresses me because there are 450,000 students affected. 450,000. When has anyone been talking about vocational education in the last two or three weeks? Um, It's all been about A-levels. And don't get me wrong, uh, academic education is very important. But I think that the fact that, you know, it was a bare mention by Ofqual in their statement on a couple of days ago when they announced the U-turn. Hardly any minister's been talking about them apart from the last day or so. And I think it's symptomatic of everything that is wrong in our education system. Why doesn't the government ensure that at least 50% of students could do degree apprenticeships at our universities? They earn while they learn. There's no debt. You, You would increase the prestige of apprenticeships in a big way these students who do them they would they get jobs at the end they still get it's a degree apprenticeship for those who want that kind of university experience and establishment snobbery about btechs and vocational education is really sad and Matt, finally, some people have said that, you know, given that exams were cancelled, the sort of fiasco could not have been avoided. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. But what do you think that the government could have done differently or should have done differently or if there was anything to avoid something, a situation like this? Well, I mean, I, my view is we were always going to end up in some kind of crisis, given the external circumstance. And it's it's sort of very easy to look back and in hindsight and say well we should have done xyz but i think the some of the decisions that were that were clearly taken in terms of how the algorithm was used and and the way in which it was giving sort of different different outcomes to to very different types of institutions i think like rob i found i found some of the events of the last 10 days incredibly depressing it sort of took me back in a way to michael young's work and and the way in which we've now had entirely different outcomes for students not based on individual ability and merit, but but simply according to the the types of institutions that they're coming from, and 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 that is an incredibly bleak state of affairs. I I I don't know, in short, what I would have done differently, but I think now what is urgently needed is a serious discussion of what we're going to do to the universities that next month will not have a sufficient number of students to meet their financial commitments and I would I we're already heading into a diff, difficult winter but I I'm almost certain that that one of the big stories in, in the next six months will be institutions that that simply cannot continue financially and, and then the government is going to obviously be faced with a very difficult question which is to what extent you know should it be providing extra subsidy and financial support. Robert same question to you. Well, it's, uh, it is easy to be wise after the event. Our, our select committee, we did a report in early July saying that we were worried about the model and urging Ofqual to publish it so that 
clever people could who understand algorithms could could actually work it out and offer changes. They refused to do this. They refused to accept advice from the Royal Statistical Society. The decision making in the DFE seems to have been found wanting. Maybe the best thing would have been to have had the teacher grades, but to have had an independent assessor looking at each grade, giving it a check and balance. What I think should happen now, after they've sorted out this awful problem, what the Prime Minister should do is set out a serious national long-term plan for education. How does he see education in our country? What should happen to universities? How should we build skills and apprenticeships? And I don't mean just a spending announcement, because... What usually happens with the Department of Education is you get a scattergun of mini announcements saying we're spending X million on promoting literacy. We're spending X million on music classes. Oh, we're going to have a billion here for capital funding. And uh, I'm not against any of it. Delighted. But it's all a whole load of clothes pegs without a washing line. What is the story of education in our country? What do we want to achieve and how are we going to get address social injustice use education to address social injustice but also to be a ladder of opportunity for children pupils and students how are we going to meet our skills deficit how are we going to prepare for the fourth industrial revolution we need to find out also what i mean it is this year has been a national disaster for uh, students in our country millions have not been learning Millions have not been um, had 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 barely any contact with teacher. And that is, of course, despite there were good, many good schools, many good teachers doing what they can. But the fact is that has happened, according to academic studies. How on earth was that allowed to happen? How on earth? What was Ofsted doing at the time, for example, as well as the DfE? Why was there not guidance at the beginning about how much was expected for children to learn every day online at home? Why, instead of having complicated national procurement schemes about computers, did they just not give, say, to teachers, here's X money, go down to your local curries and buy some computers for your kids who don't have them? And this must never, ever happen again. And if there are local lockdowns, there has to be proper guidance as to what is expected in terms of children, pupils and students learning and development. And that's why I think we need to find out how left behind these children are, how it's affected disadvantaged students in particular, and that's why I really believe the Prime Minister should do, when the first thing he does when he comes back from holiday is set out a proper vision, roadmap, plan, whatever you want to call it, for all branches of education in our country. And I very much hope that it has a strong uh, skills, vocational and technical element to it. Robert and Matt, thanks very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Next, Boris Johnson is waging a war on fat, but how effective is it? Has he really got the right end of the stick of why people are obese? Lionel Shriver writes about the issue in her column this week and she joins me now together with Dr Andrew Jenkinson, the author of Why We Eat Too Much. Now Lionel, you say that it's all about class in your column this week. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, well, I think we can verify that anecdotally just by looking around. <laughs> and I, it's also uh, conspicuously the case that more affluent, successful people tend to be much thinner. I mean, it's funny, it's, we've completely reversed what it used to be. Being portly used to suggest that you were well off because you could afford to overeat. And now that's completely reversed. 
And I put forward the notion that the reason that people uh, indulge themselves in the present is that they are insufficiently invested in the future. And perhaps sometimes for, for good reason, that when you are stuck at a lower social stratum, you have reason to be a little bit pessimistic about your future. And therefore, why invest in a, in, in a future that's, that doesn't seem especially promising? So it's perfectly rational to take the gratification that you can find in the present. And you also bring in the experience of your brother, who you say ate out of hopelessness. Yes, I have some intimate experience of what happens when someone no longer believes in their own future. And I'm afraid that that is exactly what happened to my my brother. He became uh, disabled and his work situation deteriorated and he um, was strapped. Uh, he didn't have much else in his life but food. And I, I was sympathetic. You know, we can be very judgmental about people and, oh, why can't they just control themselves? There's a, there's a point at which once you've gained a certain amount of weight, it seems so uh, unlikely that you're ever going to go back to being much thinner that what you know why not have a second piece of cake you know what, what difference is it going to make but yeah. there is a reason that obese people feel trapped and that's because they develop a condition called leptin resistance i don't know if you've heard about that lionel so basically leptin resistance affects obese people and it's almost like a type of diabetes where you've got too much insulin but the insulin isn't working. So it, leptin is a hormone that comes from your fat cells and the more fat cells you have or the fatter you are, the higher the leptin level in your bloodstream. And that leptin level acts as a signal to the weight control center in your brain, the hypothalamus, basically to, to, to tell it how much energy the body has on board. And normally for people sort of going through uh, who just struggle maybe a little bit with overweight or people who can maintain a healthy weight long term, that leptin is, is working. So you go on holiday, you maybe put on a few pounds, actually you find it quite easy to lose that weight because the leptin signal is higher and that tells the hypothalamus that you don't really need to eat as much and actually your metabolism goes up a little bit as well. When you go on a diet or you get sick, your leptin signal goes down and get a more voracious appetite and a lower metabolism to, to shift your weight back up to a, what the body perceives to be a healthier level. Now, when you reach a certain threshold of obesity, the leptin signal is blocked by inflammation and insulin. So you have high leptin rates, but the hypothalamus can't read it. And the analogy is, if you can imagine riding along the, the motorway or the highway, and your petrol gauge is almost on zero. So you sort of panic a little bit and you would need to pull over to the, to the first petrol station you see. When you start filling the car up, you realize actually it's already full of petrol. The problem is the petrol gauge is broken. And this is what leptin resistance is for obese people. So the signal of them having too much fat in their body isn't getting through to the hypothalamus. And actually obese people feel even more hungry. They feel like they've been dieting, basically. That leptin signal is really low. It's perceived to be low. 
So they will have a much more voracious appetite naturally and a lower meta metabolism. So when you say, oh, he, he would m maybe reach for that second piece of cake, actually his body is telling him to do that. These signals are like so powerful, they're like a, they're like a parching thirst. Uh, but people don't understand this about obesity. So in many ways, the longer you are obese for, the more likely you are to keep that weight. Yeah, it becomes a real struggle. And obese people, I've spoken to obviously hundreds in my in my job, feel trapped in their body. They, they, they will go on diets, they'll go on meal replacements, they'll lose weight, but they know they have this individual weight setting determined by genetics and, uh, and their environment, which pulls them back up to mm. you know, that predetermined weight. And Lionel, obviously obesity is in the news at the moment because of its correlation with a really bad reaction to COVID-19. But you've written also about this Colombian university study because race and ethnicity has also been posed as one other potential factor. Yes, there are. Certainly in both the US and the UK, the press has gone to town on the idea that black and minority ethnic people are dying at a much higher rate than white people, and they also have a generally worse response to the virus. And while this is statistically true, once you, once you work with the figures and isolate factors, it turns out that race and ethnicity is not a significant risk factor for a dire response to COVID-19. It is, it is much more to do with obesity. That is clearly a huge risk factor. And, and race is not. And this is important because especially the left has gone to town on the idea that this is just one more sign of systemic racism. But in fact, these people are not dying of racism. Well, they, they, are, they are responding poorly because they are overweight. Although I guess the counter to that is that the systemic racism is what causes unequal socioeconomic distribution such that BAME people are on the lower end of that economic scale and so therefore more likely to be obese in that sense. Uh, well I'm not I, I'm not big on uh, workarounds that deny people agency. So I would say yes, there is definitely a correlation between class and, and obesity. So in that sense, if you want to go all around the houses, it's not their fault. And of course, I'm not, I'm not big on, bl on blame in this stuff anyway. I don't think it gets us anywhere. So Lionel, what do you make of Boris Johnson's war on fat then? I mean, he suggested measures like the sugar tax and a ban on junk food adverts uh, and calorie counts on menus. You know, whether you explain it psychologically or physiologically, I'm afraid that we're dealing with some fairly profound matters. And I don't think this decorative stuff from the government makes the slightest bit of difference. I just assume they give it up. This is not a governmental matter. It's not subject to tax policy. People are not going to lose vast amounts of weight because suddenly their soda costs a few extra pea. So, Andrew, do you think there's a good enough understanding of obesity? Yeah, so the understanding of obesity is totally flawed by, you know, the public politicians and actually most doctors. And we're, we're transfixed by this smokescreen of calorie counting. So calories in, calories out, dieting and going to the gym. And... 
I, my job as a bariatric surgeon, I've obviously seen many, many people really struggling with their weight so much that they want a drastic operation. And you would think that something as easy as, you know, just eating a little bit less and going to the gym would work. But actually, they find they've tried that, and their weight does seem to get pulled back towards this sort of predetermined level, probably driven a little bit by leptin resistance. And there is this emerging evidence that now people have their own weight, individual weight setting or the weight set point, which is determined actually quite a lot by your genes, but also by your environment. And the environment affects your body in certain ways that are not particularly you know, dependent on calories. So we're talking about the quality of the food that is in the Western diet. And this includes a lot of sugar and refined carbohydrate, which will put up the insulin levels of a population and a third of that population will you know, become obese because of that. So insulin is very important. So what the food does to you, almost pharmacologically, is actually the cause of obesity. The other big, big one is probably cortisol levels. So uh, stress, lack of sleep, you know, maybe lack of too much artificial light. These things also have a profound effect on a population's obesity level. So to be transfixed by calorie counting has been shown previously to be flawed and will remain flawed. And it's not until we understand obesity as a population and realize that it's not the calories in the, the Kentucky Fried Chicken that matter. It's actually what the food is doing to your insulin and inflammatory, you know, inflammatory oils and things like that in your body. Lionel and Andrew, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you both for joining. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And last, according to the Met Police, in the last month alone there were over 500 illegal raves across London. You might think that's socially irresponsible, but in this week's issue, James Dillingpore celebrates these young people who are rebelling against the lockdown. He joins me now together with Leif Arbuthnot, a Spectator contributor and author of Looking for Eliza. So James, you write about the renewed hope you have for young people in this week's issue. Can you tell us why? Well, it's these reports of all these illegal raves going on around the country. And I think, yeah, way to go, kids. This is what you should be doing. You should be rebelling against the system. And I've been really worried that among the most COVID-compliant bedwetters in the country right now have been these, well, I'm not sure how you define them. Are they millennials? Are they generation Z, but young people who really should know better because A, they're only going to get the disease at worst asymptomatically and B, you know, life is for living when you're young. You shouldn't be worrying about what the the NHS does or what the government's propaganda departments tell you. You should be, you should be defying them. Leaf, are young people bedwetters? <laughs> no, they are not. Well, there are some, but um, most of them are not. I think I'm not as discouraged by this, the fact that a lot of young people seem to care whether, you know, the older and more vulnerable people in their lives might get sick. I think there's a lot of kind of fetishization of like partying that goes on and drug taking that I find quite lame, actually, from older people. But James, you're very welcome to come back on that. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Ooh. Well, I, I, I've learned one thing. The young can be very catty, <laughs> especially after I, I, 
I, and also, Leif, since we're going to be catty, you're kind of contradicting yourself because <laughs> in that rather excellent piece you wrote, you described a scene where you go, you go to this kind of speakeasy, a kind of prohibition era type thing where you go and see a play underground and that's all admirable. <laughs> but then you talk about how lots and lots of people in the artistic community and lots of young people are, are very much into obeying the government's regulations and stuff they're not rebelling so yeah I mean I think you I think you are in a minority well artists on, on the whole in the UK tend to be on the left and a lot of them are kind of you know in their 20s 30s 40s that group of people seems to be quite keen to obey the rules even if they are Tory rules so there is a strange contradiction here as you say that like we think of art as, as something that breaks kind of boundaries but in fact today's art is quite anti-transgressive in, in the kind of COVID sense. But I, I also wrote a piece of The Spectator when, in which I went partying on the internet. So I joined up to all sorts of raves that were happening on Zoom and I turned on my camera and danced around in my <laughs> in my home and saw all these other weirdos at home also <laughs> dancing. So there are options for people who are, you know, who are worried about spreading COVID but are quite happy to flip open their laptops. Sorry, you went to a virtual rave and you're talking about us oldies as being lame. <laughs> I cannot think of anything bit more lame than sitting at home, staring at a computer, watching people dance. I, I wasn't sitting, I was standing and She dancing. was dancing too. Yeah, all right, all right, dancing to a, to a screen. Yeah, right. I, I am with James on this one. Your description of the little windows of people on, on this Zoom rave, you know, it made me want to go have an actual rave. <laughs> I think it was also quite good people watching. I'm endlessly curious about people's drab, drab, drawing rooms, kitchens, bedrooms. And so I got a mass view into, into all these little lives happening across the country. So that was also quite satisfying about this weird online rave I went to. James, just going back to Leaf's other piece about underground theatre, were you surprised to read about it and that these adults, in quotation marks, Labour grandees, for example, turning up at this underground theatre? Well, it reminds me of the sort of thing one reads about Václav Havel and his underground artistic resistance in Czechoslovakia, the Velvet Revolution. We're living through a kind of version of what people went through behind the the Iron Curtain in the first half of the 20th century. I, 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 I do find it extraordinary the times we're living in. So any sign of rebellion against that oppression strikes me as a cause for celebration. James, you write with such longing about these raves in the magazine this week. Will you be going to some yourself? I think it... I think it would be a bit weird. (laughs) Um, Somebody in his mid-50s off his face on pills at at an illegal rave. Do you think I, I might not stand out slightly? I think I would. Leaf, would you reckon? <laughs> I'm afraid I think you would stand out, but that's no reason not to do it, that you should do it anyway. Yeah, Stick yeah. it to the man. Yeah, I think my youth is gone. Leaf and James, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. You can pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Joan Collins, Joe Johnson and Isabel Hardman. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Mm-hmm.